0: Sound Opinions is supported by Goose Island, pairing beer and music since 1988. Goose Island Beer Company, Chicago, Illinois. Listen critically, enjoy responsibly.
1: you got to understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless.
2: so crazy about. It. It's just music.
0: Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cott. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's
3: only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are going to welcome Colexico, a band that fuses world music
0: with rock and roll. Plus, Greg and I will review the new albums from two rock giants, ACDC and Bob Dylan. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for some music news.
3: Yes, Rockwell was right. Big Brother is watching you. That's at least according to an entertainment media research study. One of the leading European entertainment consultants just conducted a massive survey of download activity in the UK and other European countries, and it found... That 61% of illegal downloaders said they believed that they were being monitored by their Internet service provider. And 72% said they would stop downloading music if they got one of those scary warning letters from their ISP basically saying, we're going to cut off your Internet service if you don't stop downloading. What this means is that the tide may be turning in the record industry's uh, war against their consumers who are downloading music illegally. Uh, In the past five years, the record industry has been sending out countless warning letters, subpoenas, fines, basically saying... You're going to pay, pay, pay unless you stop downloading. Uh, consumers have been paying to the tune of three dollars to $5,000 if they get caught, but the vast majority of people are totally ignoring the record industry's warning letters and, and continuing to download at a pace of 20 to 1, illegal downloads to legal downloads. Now, however, the Internet service providers are being asked to be involved. Uh, some of the leading industry figures have asked internet service providers to start warning their customers and say, if you don't stop downloading music, we're going to cut off your service to the internet. And this seems to be working.
0: This puts the ISPs on the level of like the United States Postal Service. Yeah. It's a felony to send like threats through the mail. But it gets back to the very question of is downloading a crime? Exactly.
3: But this is what a lot of uh, leading advocates in the music industry have been saying for the last six or seven months. Paul McGinnis gave a big speech at the Meetum Music Conference in France earlier this year, the manager of U2, basically saying the ISPs have got to start telling their consumers that basically they are robbing us blind and that they need to stop, otherwise they will not get Internet service, and it seems to be getting some traction. Now we're seeing this happening in Europe. It's only a matter of time, I think, before it gets to the United States. Other interesting aspects of the study teenage downloaders continue to download music in record numbers and one of the big reasons that they're saying they're downloading so much illegal music is because the legitimate digital stores the iTunes of the world if you will are not complete enough they don't offer enough music that they want so in other words they're going to other sources to find this music so once again the music industry has had eight years to try and satisfy their customers and according to this survey are still not doing a very good job of it
0: Craig, I have another story about another study out of the UK, which is of particular interest to us. The cliche is, you are what you eat. Well, in our world (laughs) at Sound Opinions, you are what you listen to. We know you by the music you love most. Now we have a scientific study from Harriet Watt University in Edinburgh. Professor Adrian North is in the psychology department there, and he did this extensive study of 36,000 people from around the world collating the kind of music they love most with certain personality traits, kind of making science out of, you know, if you're a death metal fan, you're this kind of person. Well, we thought it would be fascinating to uh, get some insight on this from Professor North. Welcome to the show, Professor.
4: Thanks very much.
0: Why don't we start with you explaining this study to us. What was the goal going in, and what have you gotten so far in your research?
4: Sure. I mean, we already know, of course, it's common sense that everybody uses music in some way to define themselves, You only have to look at kind of, you know, kind of young kids who go around wearing lots of kind of black clothes and eyeliner, for instance, or or a variety of other kind of clothing styles, if you like, to to, to see that a great many people, to some extent, define themselves through music. So what we wanted to do in this research was just to look and see specifically how does music relate to to how you feel about yourself and particularly how does it relate to your, your personality? We asked people to visit a website where, first of all, they just rated how much they liked each of 104 different musical styles, which we picked from right the way around the world. And then people did a fairly short personality test for us, which is called The Big Five, which gives you a score for each person in terms of the extent to which they're creative, hardworking, outgoing, gentle, and also at ease with themselves. And all we did then was just put those two sets of data together. How does liking for each of those 104 different musical styles link to different types of personality?
3: Would you say that the uh, research uh, proved a lot of the anecdotal evidence about what people already think? Well, you listen to classical music, you're a certain type of person, or you listen to heavy metal, and you're a certain type of person. Would you say you are?
4: Yeah, kind, kind of yes and no, really. I mean, in some respects, what what we found was absolutely what you'd expect. For example, I mean, as, as you mentioned, heavy metal—that was a nice example from our work. We found that heavy metal fans really did have lower levels of self-esteem than, than did the group of people as a whole. If you like. Well, there are also some quite interesting, surprising findings in there, too. I mean, for instance, if you compare the heavy metal and classical music fans of all things, that they bizarrely had a fair amount of stuff in common in their personalities. For example, they both tended to be groups of people who were relatively creative. They both tended to be relatively at ease with themselves as well. And there are other similarities, too. So I would say, in some respects, we, 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 we didn't conform the stereotypes, but in others, of course, yeah, absolutely we did.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, this is why we were eager to talk to you, Professor. As two rock critics, Greg Cott and I have spent our lives uh, sussing people out by, I mean, you know, we, we, you can tell us your three favorite bands in the world, and we know you.
4: Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Again, it's, a, it's another nice bit about this research. I mean, what clearly it does tell you indeed is, it, is exactly that. If, if, if you tell someone just your musical preferences, maybe what that allows you to do is is to infer a fair amount about their personality. Well, particularly what these results tell us in in real statistical terms, you can infer around about 12% of their personality completely just by knowing the, the music that they like. So yeah, it's it, it, you know, as, as these things go, that, that, that's a pretty good guide. Yeah,
0: we've always thought, I've always said you know, if you want to, if your car breaks down, you need help changing your tire, you want it to happen at a heavy metal concert. Because these people, as you found in your research, are <laughs> gentle, they're generally sweet.
4: Oh yeah, I, mean, I think that's one other interesting thing that comes out of this, particularly when you look at fans of not just heavy metal, but also at the fans of rap that, that, that took part in our study. You know, of course, the fans of both those styles are subject to some, some sadly, kind of nasty stereotypes, not just in, in Britain, but also in, in the us as well i know and and, you know pretty well throughout the western world and again what i think is interesting is that there's no real group of fans that came out as as, as completely bad if you like i'm sure there were some that came out the nicer than others i mean i think overall off the top of my head i think it was our fans of jazz and soul who who overall came out as being the most (laughs) Mm -hmm. kind of the best well-adjusted personalities but i say you know fans of fans of rap and fans of heavy metal had plenty to recommend themselves for example our fans of them Heavy metal, off the top of my head, came out as being relatively outgoing relative to most groups of people. They came out as being, generally speaking, quite gentle people as well. So it's this stereotype that we often have of fans of rock and rap as being these kind of raucous types just just really doesn't hold water.
0: Professor, one of the challenges that that Greg and I have had in our view of the world based entirely on music is that uh, one thing we're seeing with Generation Y, largest group of of teenagers in in history in America since their parents, the baby boomers, is this increasing thing. You know, Greg and I will go talk to a high school class and we'll say, well, what do you guys listen to? And they say, and we hate this, everything. Yeah. And by that, they do not mean they are voracious listeners. They mean they copy whatever's on their friend's iPod and they're not, increasingly not defining themselves with the music they love.
4: I to say, people aren 't define themselves with the music they love, but I would say that these groups are based on a much more kind of eclectic mixes of music where it 's much harder these days to identify kind of common musical characteristics that link them all together. but there 's still kind of a strong subculture that 's in there. A good example of that is the rise of the emo subculture it isn 't just about loud guitars and kind of you know, gloomy lyrics it 's much broader base than that, but nonetheless that doesn't mean to say that the music isn't part of it there 's just a whole bunch of other components that go with it. I think one of the points worth making here as well is one thing we deliberately looked at in this search is precisely this point you make whereby you know musical tastes are much less tightly defined around one very specific style these days. And one thing we looked at very specifically, I mentioned earlier on, we've got this measure of how creative people are. And one interesting thing that we found is that the higher the overall liking ratings that people gave for all 104 musical styles, so the higher they tend to score on this measure of creativity and broad-mindedness as well, which, which suggests that you know, kind of musical broad-mindedness extends itself to, to broad-mindedness in, in a, your worldview in general.
3: Mm. Well, that raises an interesting issue, Professor North. What are the implications for your study in terms of the way uh, people are consuming music these days? Obviously, we've seen a huge decline in CD sales. Uh, people are downloading more music than ever, but they're not necessarily paying for it. Do you see any correlations between... What's going on here in this study and the way people are consuming music?
4: I think certainly what, what this kind of finding really kind of lends itself towards is these kind of these market segmentation strategies that, are, of course, record companies have been using for a long time now. They don't focus on one particular artist so much, but they focus on, if you like, almost a group of consumers with, with a whole range of outlooks on the world, you know, that lead them to particular media preferences and a whole variety of different brands and a whole variety of more general commercial preferences. For instance, one of the findings of our research was that, unsurprisingly, our jazz fans came out as being really quite creative people relative to the population as a whole. But what that tells you is if, if this group of people are creative, then that means you should be marketing a new jazz release as being, for example, a groundbreaking, innovative, unfamiliar, new novel. And that's just the kind of thing that's going to appeal to its target market.
3: So, Professor, you've never told us what you like personally. I mean, how does this <laughs> jibe with your personal taste? Do you agree with what, what it says about you as a, as a music listener?
4: I, I, I don't really know. It a bit. I, mean, cause, I mean, certainly for sure, I, I tend to like indie of all the musical styles that we covered in the research. I suppose I, I technically qualify as an indie fan, which I guess means I've got kind of low self-esteem. I don't know <laughs> if that's true or not. Relatively creative? Well, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> not hardworking. Um, well, don't tell my boss, at least.
0: You're a professor. You're the head of the department. You've written a book. I'd say you're pretty hardworking and creative. <laughs>
4: well, as long as you'll let me have that in writing so I can pass it on to my boss and say that, that would be wonderful. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> Will do. Thank you so much, <laughs> Professor.
4: It's a pleasure.
3: That could only be one band, that is the immortal ACDC, with those same chords, played again the same, same way drum beat, yeah, as they have for 33 years. Uh, since 1975, ACDC, originally out of Australia, now with band members spread across three continents, has made uh, records and has been selling lots of them. 200 million worldwide. You know, many people may not believe that, but 200 million records, that is a staggering number of records, including... 42 million copies alone of their biggest seller back in black their 1980 release now they've got a new album out it's called Black Ice it's going to be available exclusively at Walmart stores they're following in the footsteps improbably enough of the Eagles (laughs) whose long road out of Eden was also only available out of walmart a double disc that sold 3.5 million copies nobody's buying cds anymore well the eagles proved him wrong and now acdc is saying i think our fans are going to follow suit they still buy our cds ACDC is one of the few bands out there that has actually taken a stand and said, we're not going to make available any digital downloads of this record. We are not going to sell individual tracks on iTunes. And and you can only get it at Walmart, and you can only buy it as a CD. Mm. One thing we need to point out about this band, Angus and Malcolm Young, uh, the guitar players in this band, have been doing it together for 33 years, as we said. And this is one of the classic hard rock bands of all time. We are going to be back with a review of Black Ice in a minute, but let's play a song from it first. It's called Spoiling for a Fight by ACDC on Sound Opinions.
0: Boiling for a Fight by the Immortal AC/DC from the new album Black Ice. Greg, I only made the argument last week on the show when we were talking about Oasis that when a band is so devoted to a formula, I just don't see the point after a while of buying a new album when it's exactly like the last one. There are two exceptions, I think, really high on the list, The Ramones and AC/DC because the formula is so simple and brilliant. I just can't get enough of it. It's like having too much beer in the fridge. There is no such thing. You know what I mean? How can you have too much beer in your refrigerator? You can't. You can't have too much ACDC in your collection. It hardly even matters that there are no fewer than four songs on this record about rock and roll. There's a rock and roll train. There's a rock and roll dream. There's rocking all the way. And, of course, there's the girl. She likes rock and roll. It's it's stupid. It's about booze. It's about sex. And that's fine. I love it to pieces. The only thing that I say, shame on them, is this Walmart. You know, I don't want to have to walk into that store to buy this record. But, you know, nevertheless, this is a buy-it quality record.
3: You know, I think a lot of people are going to buy it. I hate to speculate about the marketplace, but I think it is going to be a huge, huge album. And just the fact that there's still this incredible appetite for their back catalog indicates to me that there's an incredible appetite for anything ACDC is going to release this. I mean, this is the first album in eight years. People have been anticipating
0: this. Let me just interject. It's not that I'm... Against Walmart. It's that, you know, let's think of all those mom and pop stores around the world that have been selling ACDC records for 30 years and making that band money. And then this band spits in their face by saying, you can't have mom and pop, you know, you can't have this record. You have to, you know, it's only going to Walmart.
3: Yeah, it's silly. I think it's a bad move. As for the music, Brian Johnson, the lead singer, is essentially there to scream his lungs out. He's not there to worry. He's not there to confess his, you know, the world <laughs> is going to pot. He's, he's not there to think. I mean, this is basically a sound, and it, it is a great sound. What Brendan O'Brien, the producer, has gotten back to is that Robert John Mutt-Lang sound of the late 70s, early 80s, when Lang was producing Back in Black and Highway to Hell. Yeah. He was cleaning up the sound where there was a, this great separation between the instruments. There was a lot of space around them. And that's what Brendan O'Brien has gotten back to. He is not reinventing ACDC in any way. There's a touch of strings on one song, and that's enough to make ACDC fans faint. They're going to go, oh, my God, <laughs> there's something different about that song. But otherwise, this is basically a 1980 vintage ACDC record. Phil Rudd and Cliff Williams, nobody knows who they are. They've been in this band forever. But what a great rhythm section on top of Malcolm Young's rhythm guitar the only thing I would fault this record for Highway to Hell and Back in Black they were 10 songs about 40 minutes each yeah what we have here is about 15 songs in 55 minutes I realize it's the CD age you want to add stuff but you know I want a short sharp fist to the face that's over in about 40 minutes and I think this album would have been a lot better would have been amazing if it was about a third less long but but still we rate things on Buy It Burn It Trash and I gave it a buy it I don't think it's a buy it. Uh, oh! I don't think it's a buy it because there's 15 songs. I said I think it need. I think you need to burn those 10 songs. Wow! So I'm going to tell uh, ACDC fans: don't go to Walmart. Find this thing online and you burn those the 10 great songs. Biggest
0: ACDC fan, and you're not in yeah, their corner.
3: I'm absolutely in their corner. I just think they should have had
0: five less songs on this record. So that's a buy it from me and a burn it from Greg on ACDC. Up next on Sound Opinions, we sit down with the band Calexico, and later on we'll review the latest in Bob Dylan's Bootleg series. That's in a minute from Sound Opinions on Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Greg, one of our favorite bands in indie rock today is the group Colexico from Tucson, originally formed by Joey Burns and John Convertino as an offshoot of Giant Sand. They were doing time in that band led by Howe Gelb. I think they've become one of the, the premier bands of Southwest Americana, mixing rock and roll and American roots music, Jazz, any old more spaghetti Western soundtracks, they are one of the most ambitious groups on the scene today. We spent some time in the Jim and K Maybe studio with Calexico, band members Joey Burns, John Convertino, Paul Niehaus, Jacob Valenzuela, Martin Wink, and Volker Zander. Hi guys, thanks for coming in. Well, thanks for having us here. It's great to be here. Sixth studio album. Just out on Chicago's uh, Quarterstick Records, Carried to Dust. Why don't we start with this is being positioned as kind of a return to form after the more kind of pop-accessible rock sound of the last record. Was there a goal going into the studio to make this one?
5: Uh, not really. There was. This is Joey, by the way. Hi. There was really no goal just to try to come up with some good songs and to kind of go back to the way uh, we've done things in the past where we just start off with John Convertino, on the drums and myself on guitar and
0: 20 years you guys have been working
5: it's been a while yeah so we just kind of write and record at the same time we don't
0: rehearse it's a little different though in the sense that this this current sextet that we're here with in the studio has kind of gelled into like the most permanent lineup of the long history of Colexico for right? about
5: 10, 10 years yeah. yeah yep so it's been good and uh I think it, the goal was just to get some real basic recordings you know just uh To record at Wavelab, which we've done on on all the previous records, and also to have Craig Schumacher of Wavelab mix the record. And I think his mixing probably is that familiarity that that some of the the fans have come to know and love.
0: Is that a sound you could get anywhere else besides that studio in Arizona? I'm sure we
5: could. If we had... uh Craig and his wacky sensibilities <laughs> be, be easy.
0: <laughs> there does seem to be a sound that
3: comes out of that studio. We were talking to Nico Case uh, mm-hmm. yeah. a year or two ago about yeah. recording there, and she's uh,
5: pretty smitten with that place as well. It's laid back. It's, it's pretty comfortable. You can kick your shoes up on the furniture, and you can bring your dogs in, and they can pee on the floor, eat the cables, <laughs> and they don't mind. Uh, Joey, you and John, this partnership really started uh, around 1990.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, you started out as kind of a rhythm section. I kind of looked at you guys as a... Uh, kind of an indie rock mini version of Booker T and the MGs or something like that. Sly a lot and of Robbie, Ross maybe. Sessions yeah. and things like Those that. Those are
4: nice
5: compliments. Thank you very much, guys. Um, yeah, John and I met through a mutual friend in L.A., and we were playing with Hal Gelb of Giant Sand for John probably 13 years and me for about 10 years and started off playing in L.A. and then touring around, you know, Europe and, and the States, and then everybody kind of gradually migrated to Tucson, which is a very laid-back small town, and it's been going well. How did it evolve from rhythm section into songwriting? It involved, I think, uh, collecting old instruments. <laughs> John uh, loves old accordions, marimba's old drums, and we just started stockpiling them. We'd go to the Chicago Music Store downtown Tucson and rescue a few of these kind of beaten and broken and dusty instruments and repair them, bring them back to life.
0: It was called the Chicago Music Store, but it's downtown Tucson? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that makes no sense, but okay.
3: <laughs> so just adding these instruments to your
0: personal collection, that
3: sort of inspired the songwriting.
5: It did. It did indeed. Each uh, instrument kind of brings in its own flair and, and flavor and character. And, you know, not that we're really experts at all these instruments. I played some cello in high school. Um, I wound up buying a mandolin and... You know, was just kind of tinkering on these instruments and adding little textures here and there on some of the early recordings. And it wasn't until 98 when we recorded The Black Light where we brought in musicians that played violin and trumpet and pedal steel that really kind of brought forth this bigger ensemble.
3: Well, before we continue with the conversation, uh, why don't we get a song from Colexico? What are you guys sure. going to play?
5: I guess we'll start off with Two Silver Trees.
0: Well, Silver Trees by Colexico. I got to ask about the John Fanti connection. Fante's a great novelist. I've always thought kind of the missing link between Hubert Selby and Jim Thompson. Yeah, it's a good so uh, there's a connection there. Ask the Dust was his novel. Right, Carried to Dust, title of this sixth Colexico record. What's what? What was the inspiration there?
5: I think just the the novel itself, the story of uh, this Italian immigrant fledgling writer starting out in Los Angeles, writing everything from heart loss to uh, no money, no job earthquake in Long Beach, California. His true love runs off with another writer out to the California desert of Joshua Tree. And uh, through all of this, there's some, <laughs> there's some resolve. <laughs> there's some moral here at work.
0: And this is, like, in your head, is this the ideal soundtrack to that ordeal?
5: No, I think the, the title came after the record was finished, and we were kind of racking our brains, wondering what to call this. And uh, John came up with the title. And I looked online, and I accidentally typed carried by dust, and then I found the definition for electricity. Mm. And I thought that was great, and then John wrote back and said, no, 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 it's carried to dust. Mm -hmm. I'm like, ah, now that's poetic. Yeah.
3: You guys have a knack for that sort of thing. Um, Mm. This is, uh, as you've just described, Joey, a a more personal record from that standpoint. Garden Ruin, the previous record, was uh, kind of viewed as a little bit more of a political statement for you guys. Unusual for you in terms Mm -hmm. of... That kind of content in your lyrics. And also, the sound was, as Jim had alluded to earlier, a little bit more of a pop oriented record. It is sort of the record that probably Colexico fans gravitate toward when it's it, it's sort of an us against them kind of thing. It's like the it's the love it or hate it Colexico record. How do you view it now?
5: I think that's a good I think that's a great sign. You know, it's I mean for a long time a lot of our records people just kind of they found something in there that, that either their grandparents or their parents or their kids liked. And I think we just kind of wanted to shake uh, the definition of what our band was or could be at that time and there's a lot of frustration I think just globally and nationally here at home and I think we were all feeling it artistically and it kind of wound up balled up into this record called Garden Rune which I like a lot and I think a lot of people that maybe were on the fence about our band liked it and then those that didn't didn't you know we love working and so there's there's never an you know uh, a drought with the, the music for Calexico.
0: Well, it's it's true, from, from writing a song for Nancy Sinatra to uh, serving essentially as the backing band for I'm Not There, that Mock Dylan biopic. I mean, you guys do do a lot of projects outside that all seem to bring something back to the group when you reconvene.
5: And for me, it's just all part of the big picture. It's just what we do. And I know, you know, when you look at a record, then, you know, that's a very defined moment and it's kind of a, a slice of, of what's going on in people's lives. But I kind of look at things more uh, long term, I guess.
3: You know, when you came out, started putting records out in uh, 94, very distinctive sound. And I think one of the things you were talking about earlier with Garden Ruin is how you were sort of maybe blowing up some of the stereotypes about what the band was. But I love the I love looking back on just the, uh, there's a whole dictionary of words that have been used to describe what Calexico is and what they sound like, Mm -hmm. and you're laughing. Is there one that sticks under your skin in terms of just like, that is the weirdest, where Mm -hmm. where did they pull that one out of?
5: I think, no, I mean, I think one of those that kind of stood out early on was from uh, a good friend of ours. Fred Mills is a writer, and he came up with Desert Noir. (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> and i I thought that was uh, pretty creative and it and it stuck for a long time, and I guess it still kind of applies, but uh you know we've got members that are that are living in Europe, and so there is a bigger outlook, a bigger perspective i think, and I think that kind of factors in it's it always has for me you know I think John and I grew up in households where you know it wasn't just rock music being played, you know John's mom and dad both played music professionally and taught music. John's uh, Italian immigrant connection much like John Fonté I mean the you know it it shows through in John's playing he is stirring the soup Literally back there <laughs> I turn around sometimes And I see you And he's got one hand held out Like he's yeah. a quarterback Or something you know a Statue of Liberty Or something right, like
0: so, so we're getting into this stew. We got, we got the mix of Weird instruments The, the kind of uh, literary Fenty thing And then also I hear wine I hear you guys have Become uh, huge wine snobs And this is sort of Like an Oneophiles Tour of South America This record
5: We're hoping that uh, Is that we'll, right We'll get to do a tour Of some vineyards And uh, we're looking at California First, yeah, we love uh, we love the wine, and uh, we love the food, and that's that's one of the uh, the perks, I guess, of touring so <laughs> yeah. much. And uh, you know, there's always going to be packaged sandwiches backstage for you, but uh, it's nice to kind of get out and explore. And I think that kind of goes with the territory. And and I I think most certainly everybody, especially uh, Folker and Martin here, you know, they they have nice tastes. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Wine snobs, equal opportunity <laughs> Who wine told drinker. You? Yeah, did Nico tell you?
0: <laughs> why don't we? Uh, why don't we have another song? All right,
5: this song has nothing to do with wine, but if you drink too much, you probably wind up where this character winds up. This is the news about William. You guys ready?
2: walks asleep Dogs on the porch And spiders on the leaf Shit wrecked by night sailing through days Nobody knows Boarded up the windows with pain and with pride. The music box broke in, there once was his soul. It said little songs spinning out of control. Eyes and pointed streets out. The second line drums marched into the sea. While the clouds overhead cried you to me. They parted for Kathy and her.
3: That's the news about William from Colexico live on Sound Opinions. If you'd like to comment on anything in our conversation with Colexico or anything else in the show, give us a call on our hotline, 888 859 1800, or send us an email at interact at soundopinions.org. We're going to be back after a short break on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with more of Colexico, and later on, Jim and I are going to rate the new Bob Dylan record. back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. You're listening to a conversation and live performance from Calexico. You know, this Tucson band has never been easy to pin down a sound that has been all over the map. And uh, I asked Joey Burns whether or not that was a goal from the start, to have this wide-open sound. Did you have all this in mind when the band first got together? I mean, getting back to that, we were joking about the desert noir. Uh, All the superlatives and adjectives people were hurling at Mm -hmm. what this sounds like. It was distinctive, though. Uh, Mm -hmm. and, And did you have the that sense that you know we're not going to start a band unless we can truly do something that's our own thing and and mm. sets us apart from everybody else out there i mean was that the thinking going on back then no i
5: think just following your instinct what it is that you want to hear and uh, that same kind of experimentation into uh, into playing some of these acoustic instruments and in carving out something that is in some ways you know has creative arrangements and interesting combinations of uh instruments going on and uh of course, using instrumentals has been very uh, successful for us with songs being licensed into films and TV, and it's just fun, you know, I mean, we're, we're players, we love playing, and um, we like collaborating with other musicians too, whether they're singers or players, and, and I think that kind of getting, just for me, getting lost into the tone of some of these instruments and the combinations that uh, we have here, what they kind of make up, and how to feature different instruments on different songs or voices and just kind of keep that variety going. That's, that's what propelled me, and it and still does.
3: So when you're writing the songs, mm-hmm. uh, are you envisioning that sound in your head as well? I mean, I assume you're writing on fairly... I mean, you're writing on an acoustic guitar, let's right, say, whatever. Right, part, yeah. And do you hear the, the rest of that orchestration and texture in your head when you're, when you're writing the song?
5: I hear mostly mood and melody. That mm. kind of gets me going first, and then, you know, for me, I, I love putting more and more <laughs> overdubs <laughs> on top. And John's like, "Remember that first rough mix when it was just guitar and drums and and no bass and just you know." <laughs> <laughs> Can we get back and to get- that? Get- and John kind of brings in the-, the air and the ambiance and and the spontaneity and really, for me, keeps things grounded. Right, John. <laughs> Thumbs up. John's got a sore throat today, so he's not, not talking.
0: Also, we've walled him in as the drummer.
5: That's right. And John is a unique drummer because right now in his hands, he's got a pair of wire brushes with the wooden handles. He gets a really unique sound with the with the brushes because he's also, I uh, guess, he's rubber bands and kind of clamps the, the edge where or the part where the wire meets the, the wood. Mm-hmm. And kind of has a little more um, density there, so we can mm-hmm. get it a good flap on like that crash cymbal or something. Can let's we hear a little bit of that? Let's hear that.
3: John? Can we hear a flap?
0: There you go.
5: There's That's a soft. He's a dynamic drummer, this
0: John. If we had John Bonham playing with brushes, it would sound <laughs> not unlike that.
3: You want some bottom? I'll give you There's some. There's a new direction oh, wow. right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. there. 2009, <laughs> the next Colexico record. The template has been set. Why don't you give us another tune? What do sure. you? Sure.
5: I was thinking we would do a song that Jacob here wrote, and um, and it's sung in Spanish. It's called Inspiración.
0: Well, are the horns? Are do, are we right to call them mariachi, or is that uh, not
5: right? on this song? You can't. Yeah. You'll get you'll get taxed. <laughs> okay. You get a parking ticket. <laughs> yeah. Okay. You're in big trouble if you do that. And um uh, no, this is more Cuban style. Afro Cuban style by way of uh, South Tucson. So are you guys ready? Yeah. All right, here we go. <laughs>
1: y tú mi amigo me inspiras mis pasos me voy por el mundo conociendo varias gente pero nunca hay una persona Ya estoy aquí Si pudieras mirarme ¿Qué pensarás de mí? Pero hoy es muy tarde Para decirte que eso ha cambiado Me puede, me duele Que ya no estás Es muy tarde
3: on Sound Opinions, beautiful stuff from the uh, carry to Dust record. We want to say thanks to uh, all the members of Calexico, uh, Joey Burns, John Convertino, Paul Niehaus, Jacob Valenzuela, Martin Venk, and Volker Sonder for being here today. Thanks, guys, for coming in.
1: Thank you.
0: You're listening to Sound Opinions. Fat man
2: looking at a shining steel.
1: Thin man looking at his last meal.
2: Holler man looking in a cotton field for dignity. Wise man looking at a blade of grass. A young man looking in the shadows that pass. Poor man looking through painted
6: glass. For dignity.
0: that is Bob Dylan with the song Dignity, originally released on the Oh Mercy album in 1989 now appearing in a radically different version, stripped down with just the piano on the 8th installment of his bootleg series called Telltale Signs just came out it's a double disc set part of this series which previously has focused on a lot of uh, Dylan's 60s outtakes rarities live recordings this one is devoted to that period primarily culled from the recording sessions of three albums Oh Mercy in 1989 Time Out of Mind in 1997 and Modern Times in 2006 a period that many critics Greg hailed as a late career renaissance now we're getting alternate versions we're getting live takes we're getting songs that were left off of the recordings. This is Dylan in what uh, John Perella has recently called his wandering, God-haunted, apocalyptic philosopher phase. (laughs) He knows he's coming to the end of the road. He's commenting on that, and he's doing it in, in grand form. Let's play a song. We don't often do best of collections, rarities collections, live albums. This is almost like a new Dylan album. That's why we're talking about it. Listen to High Water for Charlie Patton, a live recording with Dylan and the band of that song on Sound Opinions.
2: I'll spin the vine, nothing's standing down. I want a living place. I want a rising, saxile sliding down. Folks are losing their possessions folks are leaving town. But the message, shaggy, broken. 5.
3: High Water for Charlie Patton, a live version of that Bob Dylan track from the new Dylan record, Telltale Signs, rare and unreleased 1989-2006. Just one of many alternative versions of uh, Dylan tracks uh, from the last 16, 17 years. As you said, Jim, a, uh, an important period in Dylan's career, uh, one of the few artists that can be said to be having a, a renaissance of this magnitude where the records that he's been making in, in the last decade plus have been compared very favorably to his greatest work from the 60s mm-hmm. and, and with good reason. This presents the alternative to those records in a lot of ways. It's fascinating. The material is that rich and that good that to hear these alternative versions makes this a new Dylan record for me in many yeah, ways. Yeah. It's, it's like hearing that 90s period when he was coming back in a new light. Particularly strong, I think, are those live tracks. You you mentioned the, the power of that version of High Water for Charlie Patton, which I think blows away the studio version, which wasn't bad, from the Love and Theft record. But, uh, but he
0: had that great band that he was touring with and really exploding guitars on stage night after night, and yet he wasn't making those studio records with that group.
3: Well, he, he started using the studio musicians on the last couple of uh, records, but I think he really figured out how to play those songs once he laid them down in stage, the studio. Yeah. And on stage, he really got a sense of where to go and the power of those tracks really reminds me of those surging moments that he would get when he was touring with the Hawks in those pre-band days of the mid-60s when he was going electric and everybody was trying to make sense of it. At the same time, you know, we heard that uh, alternate version of Dignity, a track which was gussied up by uh, Daniel Lenoir in the studio for the Old Mercy record, just hearing it in that sort of saloon version where it's just him and an upright piano playing that song, stripping it way back. Fascinating to hear that. This is a great record. I'm by it all the way on this one. It's uh, it's like new music from
0: Dylan, even though it is picking through
3: the archives of the last 16, 17 years.
0: I had some problems with the Daniel Lanois productions on two of those three albums that this record covers. You know, it was kind of this swamp bog, and and Dylan strips all of that away. It's either him and the voice and the piano or him and the voice and the acoustic guitar or harmonica. I prefer these versions in a lot of ways. Those records weren't bad. I didn't, I didn't necessarily think they were the runaway brilliant music masterpieces that some critics hailed the point is At age 67, Dylan is still having fun. You can hear, even as he plays, that I'm about to die, I'm the old man at the end of the road, I have all this wisdom (laughs) to share, kids. Even as he's playing that heavy philosopher role, he's winking, he's smiling. You can hear that on these versions where you can't necessarily hear that on the studio albums. We rate things, buy it, burn it, trash it on our sound opinion scale. Absolutely a buy it album, a double buy it for Bob Dylan. What do we have next week on the show, Greg?
3: Next week, Jim, we're going to get the uh, lab coats out of the closet. We are going to become the rock doctors once again and help a needy music patient find some great
0: new music. We have some thank yous to say, Mr. Cott, Colexico was recorded by Mary Gaffney and Sarah Toulouse. Our ace production team is, as always, Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lynn. And our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori southside Malatia. You know, we tried to put his personality into Dr. North's scale, and it just blew up the chart. I don't know <laughs> what that meant. On Sound
3: Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline. 1-888-859-1800.
1: Come on, Anna. Answer your phone. Girl. Answer your phone.
2: Pick up the receipt.
3: new messages. Hi, this is Zach from Chicago, and I have a comment about the uh, James Bond theme songs. The uh, three
0: songs that were done by John Barry, which were two by Shirley, sung by Shirley Bassey and one by Nancy Sinatra. Obviously, those two by Shirley Bassey are great. The one by Nancy
3: Sinatra did not precede Goldfinger, though. Goldfinger came out in 64, and You Only Live Twice was after that. You- So it seems. Nancy Sinatra, she does sing a great tune with, with that one, but, I mean, come on. Is she really is talented as talented as any of the songwriters who wrote her songs? I mean, really. I mean, John Barry and Lee Hazelwood. I mean, come on. And she's not the godmother of punk rock either. So where you came up with that opinion
0: is really beyond me. Other than that, good show. Thanks.
3: Hi, this is Dan calling from Chicago. In your uh, talk about favorite James Bond theme songs. He left out the Welsh Lion, Tom Jones, singing uh, Thunderball in all his hairy-chested glory when he hits that high note. It sends shivers down my spine. Thanks. So he strikes
2: like thunder
4: This is Angela Sims from the South Side of Chicago. Uh, caught your sh- show as I usually do. Uh, caught this last one, um, Psychedelic Soul. It was outstanding. The research and your history that you guys did was really great. I've been around for most of that history, and it was wonderful to have someone acknowledge all the other guys who have contributed to this and descendants of it, and it was absolutely great. I had my 16 year old listening so she could get a good understanding of how hip-hop came into be and, you know, the influences. Outstanding show. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.
6: Six. Hi, this is uh, Richard Wagle uh, just commenting on the psychedelic soul. I don't know if it's sacrilegious, but for me, the first like, real psychedelic soul I encountered was the pinball song on Sesame Street. Uh, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12 I think the Pointer Sisters uh, sang it but the visuals were definitely psychedelic and it had uh, that sort of funk jazz rhythm to it and it's probably that song that sent me out to buy all those funkadelic albums and uh, 70s funk compilations that I, I can't get enough of these days so... That's my personal origin of uh, Psychedelic Soul. So i thought to share it with you. Love the show. Bye.
0: I love it. I love it.
6: Hey, this is Jen from Brooklyn Calling, and I'm just catching up on a month's worth of sound opinions, and I heard the wedding song piece, and... I just wanted to say, if I didn't totally agree with Greg Cobb all the time before, I officially have a crush on him now. Because I Only Have Eyes For You is the most romantic song of all time. And on a Bronx Tale soundtrack, there's a version where it starts a cappella with the complexions and then sort of morphs into the flamingos version. And you just have to sit down when that happens.
2: I only for you.
6: Jim, I don't know what's going on with you. I think you really need medical attention. I mean, the banana smoothie thing was just scary, and maybe it's a symptom of Enoitis or something. Anyway, take care, this is Jen. Bye.
0: No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, one 859 We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.